Welcome, everybody. Happy Saturday night. It, it's been too long since we heard that intro music, huh, man? Huh? Uh, Gabe is muted, but buddy, I'm so great, grateful that we get to ride again. It's been six months since we did wow. one of these. How time flies. It just flies like a superhero. Yeah, I've just been getting used to the hang of like doing a lot of client sessions and getting in the other two shows per week. So uh, I've kind of rejiggered my schedule. I'm thinking we ought to be able to bring this back to a monthly hangout. I, I believe that that would be perfect. It's really fun to do this. We have so much ground to cover tonight. <laughs> I've got slides. Um, yo, everybody in the chat. Thanks for being here. Would have majorly appreciated if you Hulk smash the like button and share the podcast with a friend who likes comic book movies and conspiracies. Because of all of the movies in the Marvel repertoire, this series, the Avengers series, probably got the most programming, the most trauma stuff. In fact, when you really boil it down, the Avengers movies are about trauma. Trauma is the main theme. And not just trauma, but how trauma influences behavior and how trauma can be leveraged to influence behavior. And, oh yeah, no no Gordy, uh, I think he'll be here. Uh, he's Maybe, you know, there's always a little time zone confusion, possibly. Hopefully he pops in. Uh, I let him know. I sent him a text and we told him what time it was. So we're we're hoping to get Gordy in here. But, you know, we got the man named Gab. So I don't think we'll have any trouble <laughs> making it happen this way. So, yeah, I'm super excited. Buddy, do you have anything that you want to say? Like, OK, so the movies we're going to be covering if we can talk about all of them and kind of from a 10,000 foot view is what I've got. But I know Gabriel has some granular observations to bring to the fore. The four Avengers movies and Captain America three, which is kind of like Avengers 2.5. Honestly, they could have called it Avengers 2.5 because it's got all of them in there. So that's the, uh, those are the movies on the docket. A lot of action in those movies, extended big fight scenes. So in that sense, even though they're longer films, I don't think it's actually that crazy to try to just cover the major plot themes and character arcs the way that we have, uh, you know, in store. So, yeah, what do you want to say about these films? I know you've said a lot in your life about them already. <laughs> People should definitely be aware of your projects on this stuff if you'd like to pimp that out, too. And, yeah, let's get rolling. Yeah, uh, well, uh, I did a... Uh episode on the tarot marvel uh correspondences over on esoteric thoughts on his channel and it was such a a touching release time because it was the last thing he put out before he passed away and so this entire project is really woven itself right into my heart in a really amazing way like I'm never going to go through another February without thinking about esoteric thoughts. Um, so if anybody cares to take the time, uh, it was, a, I, I'm pretty proud of that project he and I put together. He was really helpful uh, getting my slides organized with me and it just came out in a nice flow state. So I'd like to offer that to anybody who is interested, big love to esoteric thoughts. Um, and Yes, you know, my, uh, we're always growing with this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I went back and I watched the last one we did on Dr. Strange. And, you know, and I've got a whole, I mean, it's a new lens every day. 
you know, like taking things to a whole new level every day. But those previous ones we've done just to cut in, it's really good stuff, guys. If you haven't checked out the series we've done already on other Marvel movies, we tend different than what it'll be like tonight. We've tended to go like shot by shot, really granular, like picking apart even the little aspects of the scenery, which Mm-hmm. It's a really fun way to do it, but I think in terms of this conversation, it's better to gear it this way. But we'll probably in the future be more like previous shows where we're getting down to the nitty gritty and analyzing the mise-en-scene and like the, you know, what's on the coffee mug on the back shelf, right? Like every little thing, there's some, everything's a message. Everything, everything. Yes. Um, so, um you know, as we go, I'll bring forward, you know, some of those tarot correspondences, but you know, the one that, that I focused on was the, uh, Captain America three, which is the civil war episode. And, you know, there's something like you picked up on it and you said it exactly correctly, that it's, uh, could have been like woven into the Marvel, the four staple Marvel pillars, uh, that this one is like kind of a blending of essences. Well, it sure enough, it corresponds with the temperance card, which is where she's got the one cup pouring into the other cup. And so like you were saying, you were saying it metaphorically, but if you had to pick a tarot card of the major arcana, that would be the card to express uh, the way you were, the way you were laying it out there. So, um, and then one more thing before we go on, you know, um, I am like kind of seeing things through a new lens. And one thing that I'm getting into right now is the three forms of the Greek mystery schools and what the differences are in their flavors. And I think I'm starting to be able to pick out some of their fingerprints. So that's kind of a new pair of decoder goggles I'm going to have on. You know, there's the the Orphics, the Pythagoreans, and the Eleusinian mystery cults. And they are different. And so I think I'm seeing some of their signatures woven through. And I wonder if it's been there all along. And eventually that's kind of a, a code I'm going to be cracking in on. Um, and then one more thought was I've been pondering, you know, something I used to do. I used to be a padded assailant where I would put on a padded suit and run people through scenario based training where we intentionally traumatize them and get their adrenal response flared up and then give them a learning opportunity and a chance to uh, come out of a struggle in a victorious fashion so they can rewire their trauma. And that's kind of the elevator pitch of it. But I'm starting to wonder to what degree is, are these films doing the same thing? And to some degree, it could be beneficial. I could see how you could use these films to adrenalize people, get them in a passive state, put them in an adventure experience and then rewire their response to a beneficial degree. But then again, I see how it could be uh, totally abused, you know? Uh, and so I, that's I think kind it's of what, more on the abused side. Yeah. And that's it's what up we, to the individual. It's like, are you taking it in passively or are you, right? <laughs> do you have symbolic literacy that constitutes that all important psychic self-defense? Yep. And so and, what you're talking about, the rewiring of trauma, what I want to throw in on that is just how, the the main six Avengers especially are defined by their trauma and they each have a slightly different flavor of it. We could probably even correspond it to chakras. And in that, if you are particularly prone to having stuck energy in a certain one of these categories and you identify with the character in that and you're opening up 
in that way. And then they're throwing at you all the different social engineering and predictive programming, really like crisis trauma rituals, mm-hmm. of which that's what my slideshow is really about, covering off all of the world events that are mirrored in these films. Then that's wiring you to, you know, get a stress response when you then see something related to that in the news as if it's personal, you know? Right. But on the other hand, what you're saying is also true. And I think in the modern age, an interesting potential outcome of all of this media and all of this fiction is that possibly we could be seeing humanity working out some kind of like old ancestral karma and like past life karma and trauma through the screen. Because on these different heroes journeys, you know, assuming that there's some level of resolution and character development and growth in a positive direction, there is the possibility of taking on those lessons yourself without having to go through like a war or whatever happens in the film. So I think that there's like, you know, with everything that's good and bad, and it has to do with your level of consciousness when you approach the material and whether or not, you know, you're on the self-growth trajectory or self-destruction or self-loathing trajectory. Yeah, man. Yep. And so, yeah, that's kind of, I'm starting to see it as uh, almost like layers of inception to some degree where it's like uh, on a, on a beginner level, it's like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of resolution uh, baked into the plot lines, but then on a more advanced level, I'm seeing where they're leaving, leaving wounds wide open potentially. And then I even uh, often think to myself, if I'm picking up on so many layers of meaning here, what layers am I not aware of, you know, and, and, you know, as much as I try, I'm trying to keep my filters and my psychic self-defense dialed up to an 11 when I consume this, I'm always aware that like, I have certain weaknesses, like I'm not musically inclined, you know, and I know that music is used uh, to, to weave the experience for people and steer them in incredibly subtle ways. And then I think you can kind of intuit your way through that though, because even without musical training, uh-huh. If you're aware that certain tracks are meant to invoke certain feelings, emotions, you know it when you feel it. You're like, oh, I'm hearing this music and I'm feeling that. So, you know, if yep. you've got your self-awareness game on, that particular weakness, maybe not so bad, but perhaps you're not necessarily catching the subtleties of how, right. like, a particular chord progression might relate to, like, something very specific. And I, I bet that there's levels even down to that aspect of granularity. And like the opening scenes of Avengers one were what, when I rewatched it convinced me that this isn't all, this isn't accidental, (laughs) you know, maybe some of it is a little synchronistic, but I think that there's intent behind even some of the most radically uh, specific symbolism that we find in here. But I kind of interrupted your thought. Do you want to continue on that thought? Well, no, uh, I think we're, I think we'd, Oh, well, one more thought was, um, so there are, Uh, I'm coming to appreciate that there are two levels of the subliminal and one is like when they flash something so fast on the screen that you, you know, you would take you forever to try to capture it. Even if you reduce the speed to like 0.25, it's still ultra fast. And if they do that a couple times, it can actually be a sequence that, that builds into a full message that you are not picking up on, but you are picking up on the things you, uh, don't know that, you know, uh, there are many categories and that's what I mean about inception. You know, there's many categories of knowledge. Um, but then there's another form and that is things that are so slow and happening on such a larger, more macro scale that you don't realize it. And a lot of that has to do with character development over a long arc. 
And that can even span from uh, the early films all the way to the end of the film. And you don't even realize it because it took so much time to uh, process it that the, the, the development or the change or that subtle manipulation. Uh, and then you feed it to a million people who consume it and the effects are going to come. You're going to get returns. Uh, the kind of returns you can predict people's behavior on the stock market kind of returns. <laughs> uh, again, though, that's also one of the cool things about modern comic book movies, in my opinion, like why there is love in my heart for this stuff, despite some of the obvious downsides to it, you know, that first of all, it's a work of art put together by so many hands. The level of collaboration and cooperation is pretty cool. And then what you just described, these long-term character arcs, how we're looking at four Avengers movies and then trilogies, multiple trilogies of the other characters' independent movies and how they all tie together and we have one big tapestry. You know, I, don't, I can't think of any other, like the most movies in one series I can think of other than this is maybe like the Fast and the Furious having 10 movies, which I've never seen any of them. <laughs> I don't intend to, but you know, and that's like a, a lot of rehashing the same probably elements and like a, over and over again. And to a degree, comic book movies have that going on. But I think it's cool uh, that there is the possibility of these longer, grand, interwoven story arcs. A little bit is lost in the individual movie where there are so many characters to juggle that <laughs> only so much can progress for any one character. But yeah, there's there's a lot to talk about. So... You know, we kind of hung out. We waited to see if Gordy would pop in, but uh, I think we're at a good point to maybe start getting into the weave because there's a lot of a lot of stuff to talk about. So, yeah, buddy, I'll bring up the slides. We're feel free, man, to uh, reference any of the any aspect of any of the films at any point. We don't have to try to go in order, but I do have some somewhat in order progression to go through in Avengers one and two slides. And then I know we want to talk a lot about Captain America three, which can just come in at any point. So, right on. So here we go. <laughs> that all important opening scene, you know, Avengers one. We got the cube. <laughs> the symbolism of the cube is, in and of itself, its own shoes or its own shoes. <laughs> its own shell. It's a big thing. A lot of shoes to fill, large shoes to fill with the hypercube, the Tesseract. You know, even the word Tesseract is a kind of like a hearkening back to this, to I think what opens the door to a lot of this type of fiction and fantasy, which is the idea that there are dimensions beyond this dimension. And that is, uh, you know, we, we covered that off with Matt Presty really well. <laughs> on a, mm -hmm. a recent interverse episode how this sci-fi notion of dimensions being some kind of alternate realities that are separate yet connected to this one how a lot of that is mathematical smoke and mirrors and even the term dimensions as it's used is like it's become its own word in new age and in you know sci-fi and all that but we're talking about length with and height, which is what a cube represents. You know, it's the three dimensions of length width height and time isn't even really one of the, a dimension in, in a sense, you know, we can't really even call that the fourth dimension. This is a whole side topic, but the Tesseract as a mathematical notion is that there is a cube 
in the sense of whatever dimension is beyond height, width, and length, that if you tack on a fourth dimension to all that, then whatever the shape would be equivalent to four sides in that higher level would be this thing called a tesseract, which it cannot be drawn. It cannot be demonstrated in this reality. And where the idea falls down, in my opinion, is in the sense that no matter what, within the reality that we know and within the reality that exists concretely, you cannot separate dimensions, true dimensions from each other, right? Even if you are talking two dimensions and using a sheet of paper as your example of two dimensional, well, that sheet of paper has height to it. It's just very subtle. It's a small height and you can pretend like it's not there. And we can pretend like there are higher dimensions beyond this one, but are they like, you know, why time doesn't attach as a fourth dimension? In my opinion, I agree with Presti on this is that is time connected to height, width or length? And I don't think it is. I think that we're talking about this, you know, what we experience as space, what we experience as the physical reality. I don't think that the idea of uh, alternate or higher dimensions has ever really been any good to humanity. (laughs) That's like, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the overall ramifications of these notions. And it puts people into all kinds of like fantasy based reality where like, Oh, uh, we're going to ascend to a higher dimension or, you know, it's very much the same type of priestcraft jive that we've seen so much of all all the time. Like uh, your reward is in heaven. You know, don't worry about how much you're suffering here or the alien saviors are coming. They're just on the other side of this other dimension or all of that shit. So like, you know, I don't, I'm not mad if people believe that there are the dimensions as a term that can apply to parallel or alternate realities. But I'm kind of a purist philosophically in that I look at like existence means existence. So everything that exists is comprised within existence. So separate alternate existences doesn't make sense to me because existence philosophically and like definitionally is all that exists. So how can there be parallel? I'm not ruling out things outside of the spectrum of what we can see. Uh, I'm not ruling everything out on the electromagnetic spectrum of vibrations out of our perceptual, you know, range. But I, my point in saying that is that if there's stuff that we can't perceive, it's not somewhere else. It's here and it's not a different dimension. It's a different spectrum perhaps, but you know, I'm getting into the weeds on that, but here they are presenting us this Tesseract hypercube and then showing us a scene of like, you know, another dimension or (laughs) outer space aliens and, and uh, who we find out later is Thanos. But, yeah, good yeah, at it. I know I, I spewed a lot right there. I dig it, man. I I'm dig triggered it. by like, this fucking cube. <laughs> it is. It's really something, you know. Uh, on the dimension thing, I would, I would put forward that um, if you're gonna be considering time, you have skipped movement. You know, we go uh, height, depth, width. They're kind of the same thing. That time measures movement, right? And so you got to you got to even give movement some development before you start, you know, tapping into the time factor um, and which is a weak spot in physics uh, for sure. But, you know, I want to get ahead of polymathing in the chat. I see him busting out some anagram work. <laughs> he's already, he's going to he's going to steal my thunder if I don't get this out. Oh, so you got to beat Louie to the punch. Yeah, man. Big up, brother. So uh, while you were talking, this is uh, the word Tesseract is 
is powerfully uh, anagrammatic, like a mofo here. I got, um, well, I want to do this in order. I think we've got um, test races. And that's an interesting one. Uh, biblically speaking, you know, that's a, that's just some Old Testament kind of technology. Uh, but then we even have uh, resist. Now, taking some liberties with the spelling, but my favorite of them all. wouldn't be slick dissonant without some liberty. Some liberties, all right? <laughs> my favorite is react, uh, react test. R-E-A-C-T-E-S-T could be uh, a play on the word tesseract. And we've brought this up in previous weaves, but this is also the scissors act, the act of cutting, which, you know, all goes back to the placenta. What are we, 24 minutes? It took me forever to get to the placenta. Only because I talked so much, you didn't have a shot yet. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting, though. React test, you know, test of the races. Uh, And even... um, What's this one? Oh, exist, exister, exister, E, C. No, that's not really exister. But yeah, it's pretty anagrammatic, that word tesseract. For sure. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said about the esoteric information packed within the cube that is really, really valuable. I know uh, Marty Leeds does great work on that. Somewhere in our archives, we have, uh, I think, a vibrant with L.C. King going over a lot of like cube stuff that was very valuable. So people can dig that up, but we'll move forward. But this next part, so this is still right in the beginning of the film. I jumped out of, I jumped off the couch when I saw this a couple months ago. <laughs> I was taking Jenny through the, uh, the Marvel movies and we were doing our own little demystifying together. And whenever the previous time I had seen Avengers one was sometime before I was very hip to astro theology and buddy. Yeah. It's very specific. They're doing. Okay. So in the film we're introduced to the Tesseract in the form that they're doing uh, tests on the tester Tesseract (laughs) test react. (laughs) They're testing reactions on the Tesseract and (laughs) form making energy reactors out of it. (laughs) <laughs> like you're like it's like they were aware of your anagram where they're like let's uh let's play on that and so they're calling this super secret underground military base somehow for some reason nasa is involved <laughs> space radiation um project pegasus dude and uh regular listeners will probably be already fi- seeing where i'm going with this but the pegasus square in astrotheology is everything man it's everything and there's actually quite a bit so like the main thing that the pegasus square represents especially in how this is going to pertain to a tesseract is that the tesseract is like a box right i mean it's literally a box and the idea of a the idea of the pegasus square is all all of the notions and stories about the ark the argo the argo the ark the noah's ride and uh in Mesopotamia, the the story of Atrahasis and all the many, many, many versions throughout all cultures of this story of a flood hero. That is laid up without having really the space to go through it like detail by detail. 
just take our word for it maybe, or go, go check out, uh, I think the last time I had John McHugh on, we got into the Pegasus square really in depth yeah. and he, he demonstrated some of how the flood, a lot of how the flood myth comes or is encoded in there. It's not the only place it's encoded. Yeah. There is an Argo, um, constellation up, up in the sky. But what's important to note about this is in many of the flood myths and especially the Genesis flood myth, the arc, it, the word for arc is also laid up with the term for a chest or a strong box, like a treasure chest more than uh, like a boat. And this is where you even see notions of like the arc being rectangular or square shaped. And this word used in the Hebrew is TVT or TBT, uh, Tav, Beth, Bet, or Tav, Bet, Tav, right? Now, I don't know if people out there are familiar with the term uh, Divic box, Divit box, or Dibit box, but this is a, a term in, used a lot in like paranormal studies to refer to an object that has been uh, enchanted or, or, or like become the house of an evil possessing spirit. Wow, and I see it already. The philological TBT, as it's in Tibet, by the way, Tibet has its own version of the flood myth. Tibet is named after the box or the, the ark. <laughs> and it's got a Mount Ararat. Uh, there's all kinds, of, all kinds of gravy there with Tibet. Uh, Buddhism is an older flavor of the exact same mosaic mythos. But uh, D and T interchange philologically. V and B interchange. So to Tibet or however you want to end up putting in vowels to give a name to this box that is encoded in the Pegasus square is also divot. Or totally. it's also David. Yes. Yes. It's also man. DVD. Yeah. No, there's a lot there. There's a lot there, but <laughs> suffice to say there, there's definitely kind of some implications of an evil spirit in this box. And there's many, many allusions to the flood mythos, particularly in Avengers one. We'll cover a little bit of that, but granted that we're going for a over big overhead view and we're already kind of long in the tooth. Maybe we won't get all of it in, but uh, oh yeah. Jenny just brought up the time variance authority. That's great. Yeah. That's in the Loki series. We should cover Loki. We should cover that blow by blow that, that series. Yep. All right, I'll let lot. you get in. I know I've been chatting a lot. No, it's a, all of this is awesome. I'm glad we get this on the record. You know, it's like uh, there's always such wonderful post-production brain babies that come out of these <laughs> these little shows. In case uh, I didn't say it, though, just dude. And I know you know, but dude, uh -huh. they're calling the the work on the box Project Pegasus. They know what we're talking about. They they are encoding astrotheology. They this can't be an accident. Like, why would you call it Pegasus? There's no other reason. Totally. <laughs> it's so specific. Totally. <laughs> yep, it's so on point. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's also the tablet. Uh, that's my favorite. That's my favorite other layer of the Pegasus Square is that it's the celestial tablet, and so it's and where the, the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Eden. So it's where the forbidden fruit comes from. And one re revelation I had, like putting all of this together a while back. I know you heard the the voicemail I sent to you was that I think on a very deep level. Uh, perspective art perspectival art uh was in and of its own right in its day and age when it was coming when its secrets were being revealed it was a forbidden fruit of a very special manner because think of a 
a group of people who had never seen sp- uh, spec- perspectival art for many generations, the first time they experience it, it's going to have a absolutely mind-blowing, mind-altering effect on them. It will draw them in on levels that they're not psychically prepared to deal with. So in a very fascinating way, you could think of like the dark ages is like breeding out people's psychic resistance and then boom, you hit them with enlightenment and they're, and they're like, uh, you know, kind of like we are with our phones today. Uh, and there are other things like that, like, uh, the Rukin figure I'm learning about in art when a character has their back to you, that is actually drawing you in to a sympathetic spell that you're supposed to take the perspective of that person whose back is to you and see the landscape through their eyes. So there's all these fascinating ways that art can draw people in and has been for a long time. And so, yeah, the Pegasus Square, when I see that, uh, that comes to mind, that they've been, uh, they've been working our uh, sympathetic nervous system uh, down to a science. Very, very good points, man. And, you know, now that I'm looking at the words on the screen, <laughs> dark energy is being referenced. And the West, which is philosophically, the West is where the sun goes down. Darkness yep. is in the West. Yeah. Space radiation is there. So, <laughs> you know, depending on your cosmology, like if you're one of the people out there, you know, I, I also, I, I feel this way that space is misdescribed, that it is fake and gay and that, like the physics of astrophysics. Uh, I don't know what's out there to be fair. I'm not claiming anything. I'm just saying, I know what I, I know liars when I see them. And you know, when you see fakery 10,000 times, you have to just assume it's all a lie. And so that being said, you know, back to this idea of how the Tesseract, the fourth dimensional cube and this higher, supposedly higher level mathematics. And in my opinion, bogus algebra and calculus bogus in the sense that yeah, you can balance an equation, but is there such a thing as a negative quantity in nature? No, there's no such thing as negative five in nature. So a lot of what goes on in this calculus of algebras and maths of the higher order is akin to a mental masturbation. You know, it's okay. I'm not like mad about it, but you can do, there, there is cleverness to the, to the riddles that are created and solved. I, I know I'm not like hating, but it's not a description of reality. It's exactly right. akin to running a computer simulation that you feed in data based on assumptions and, and this type of mathematics, looking at what the simulation then spits out and simulates and saying, look, that's reality. No, <laughs> the, the higher order so, so-called mathematics are a simulation. They are not reality. They're a representation, an attempted representation of reality with flaws, in my opinion. Yep. So that's where you get the idea of dark energy. It is yep. something that they come up with to try to justify their other preconceived notions like gravity. And even throwing out space radiation there is kind of like a little, I don't know, pinch on the, on the butt, right? Like there's <laughs> everything about the moon missions and all this so-called space station stuff is like, well, they're also telling you about these so-called Van Allen radiation belts and all this dangerous space radiation. But yet, you know, we can pull up a picture of the uh, lunar lander. And as uh, Owen Benjamin has been saying on Twitter lately, nobody, you couldn't pay somebody to get in that lunar lander and submerge it underwater and stay in it for an hour. 
Nobody would right. trust that thing to be airtight. Yeah, <laughs> so, totally, totally. So it's kind of like a little, there's a few other references like this I caught even in my quick skimming through the films of how they're like kind of laughing, having a little laugh about dark energy and about space radiation and about tesseracts. Like, you know, I think that, uh, I think that there are those in the know that proffer this type of worldview to people that a fantasy based reality comes out of. And that's an immediate disassociation from nature uh, mentally. And it's where you get this hyper reality notion of a uh, Baudrillard that if right. your belief system creates a framework overlay on nature that doesn't jive with nature, then you start to feel like nothing's real. And then you get easily swayed into stuff like simulation theory or easily swayed into transhumanism. And yes. it's a big <laughs> Pandora's box, you know, for a box reference there. Right. Yeah, man. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping on board with the one-on-one agenda. He's, uh, he's recoining the phrase to be space is fallacious and homosexual. <laughs> I'm, I'm rocking the one I'm on yeah man nice I've worn it for too long nice you know this is totally a side tangent but <laughs> Braden on Rockman he says show me on the chart where NASA touched you <laughs> um, but so yesterday why I postponed to be real for a second I got like a, a mega headache and I was totally unable to focus and I was kind of knocked out and uh but that allowed me to listen to you on Bird Dog's channel last night. So that was nice. While I was resting, enjoyed that a lot. People should check that out. Really good chat. Um, Bird Dog, the crypto Ronin on YouTube. He's in the chat here. I think someone's already linked it. But that being said, uh, had, you know, some coming and going of that headache today, but was determined to power through this. And, uh, you know, that's how, first of all, strategy wise, I put this shirt on right before the stream, like purple crown head. Like, this is going to do it. Like, this is the, it's, it's homeopathy. A little bit of the, of the uh, element of the pain goes into the cure. So I put this purple on and then I just know that what we're doing right now is like a calling is like a healing to me. Cause I get in here and I'm just jazzed. I'm jazzed. Headache is gone. Focus is there. I'm super stoked. So just really glad about that and can share space together. Gives me a little, you know, teary, happy feeling. Love you, buddy. Love you, brother. Yeah, man. (laughs) Find what you're here to do. It's like medicine. So, uh, one quick drop on the Gnosticism for uh, just the Gnostics are taking hits left and right right now, and I don't know what's going on, but like they are getting put in the crosshairs 15 ways from Friday, and I I mean, I already from our camp, but I'm seeing like there's a fellow out there. This uh, I I should drop his name. I should just go ahead. Uh, This guy, James Lindsay. He has found some uh, some rainbow Gnostics in the literature, and now everything Gnostic is rainbow to him. And so he's coming at it with a broad brush that has me just a little, like, repulsed, because there are redeeming things in there for the individual. But the, I think one of the biggest uh, problems here is when it gets turned into a collectivism a herd kind of thing where people are going to end up in a corner that they're not necessarily comfortable with. So I just wanted to say that then maybe bring that Voltaire quote where he says, you know, if uh, for those who can uh, get you to believe in absurdities can just as easily get you to commit atrocities. And we are coming up on a very interesting time where the Voltaire of the, the, the lightning bolt striking the tower uh, seems to be imminent 
So that's just a good uh, a good thing to hold in your pocket. And then also I want to say that space is intrinsically Gnostic. The idea, the the, uh, <laughs> the the disingenuous and homosexual concept of space is intrinsically Gnostic. That you got to get there in a giant flaming cock. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally so funny. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, but it's also the word space is escape. You know, it's an anagram for escape. Uh, they're, they're on Cape Canaveral. You know, all these things are, uh, you know, the... The forefront of the Gnostic spear is so phallic; it's crazy. It's on the it's on the cock of Florida, you know. It's a it's it's pretty wild. It's a wild ride. So I just wanted to kind of uh, point out that it, people are coming at Gnosticism from a thousand different angles, and all love and respect. Uh, I just think that it's important everybody take it. You know, blaze your own path. Don't buy into every little book you ever read about Don't it. Don't take on labels, right? That's that's all the, other the lights way. come out, you know, especially that's, in our community. Yes, yes. It's about the label when people get hurt, hurt feelings. But so that's why, you know, when I criticize Gnosticism, I don't take the broad brush of a James Lindsay or a Michael Tessarion kind of looks at it as the root of all problems. I look at I I try to, you know, make the caveat adverb or uh, adjectives on top of like. New age, pop culture, simulation theory, demiurge, fallen world, irredeemable, uh, nature is evil, Gnosticism. <laughs> like all those descriptors, you know, because <laughs> the idea of knowing is great and uh, knowledge is great. But anyway, uh, I think we're going to see Gordy soon. There oh, was good. a time there was a time zone mix up. Uh, so, but it's okay. We have so much to talk about. And when we get into the trauma stuff, you know, I think that's where Gordy's going to have a lot of really good, uh, insights for us. Not that he doesn't have good insights in general. So I'll bring up the next slide. Um, so why I put this slide up is because we see Loki show up at this early point in the scene uh, or the movie. And he, <laughs> just reading the chat a little bit. And uh, he brings his scepter and he starts controlling people's minds after he gives a big, eloquent speech. One thing we know about Loki, which, by the way, is uh, is philologically Logi or Logo. Yes. You know, this is Logos. This is the word. He's the trickster. I know that in the Norse mythology, Loki isn't fully associated with Hermes and actually Odin kind of gets more the Mercury role, but yeah. Loki is definitely a Mercury figure. He goes between the world of the giants and the world of the, the gods, you know, he, uh, sometimes he does good. Sometimes he does bad. Sometimes he's bringing you a gift. Sometimes he's stealing from you. So right. with you the know, Norse and with every other mythological system, the, you know, the key components of the Trinity, the savior destroyer or the creator destroyer redeemer, for you know simplicity's sake do get applied to multiple characters and so there's multiple mercury figures in the norse mythology and so this is like the evil mercury the evil twin <laughs> and what i i wanted to show his whole staff thing and how he begins with like eloquent speechcraft before he kills people or controls people and i wanted to just pull up this uh, artwork here so this is later in the film he's got his hat on He's got his staff. He's giving a speech in Germany to the Germans outside of the art museum. A lot goes on in those scenes. And, you know, we're not getting into the granular here as much as we could unless Gabe has, you know, 
specific memory of it. But here on the left is, who do you think that is, y'all? <laughs> Merc. Merc. You think that's Mercury? Yeah, man. He's even got his little phallus coming out from under his little skirt. So according to the British Museum of Antiquities, this is a depiction of Ogma or Agmios, the Celtic god of eloquence. Oh, that is so funny, dude. Okay, so I would look at all the so... elements of Mercury that are there, though. Yes, obviously, there's some kind of cultural diffusion. <laughs> they what? are, the, you know, it's the same guy. But what mm. I wanted to point out about this artwork that I find so interesting, and another artwork of Agmios that you see, who, by the way, he's uh, equa- equated to being the uh, the Phoenician Hercules as well, version of Hercules. So there's so much crossover, but. He, there are golden chains that come from his mouth and attached to his followers because he's a god of eloquence, logos, word. And he uses that to persuade and control the followers, you know, kind of like a Pied Piper type. And to me, like this is the archetype, the version of the Mercury figure that Loki embodies so completely in these films. Right. I got I got to drop something for Polly. He's about to cut loose. And this he's on my mind with this. I'm seeing uh, polyhymnia, which is a trip that polymathing is about to breeze out. And here I am on the tip of my tongue is polyhymnia. The, the, she's the muse of the eloquent one. That's literally her epithet is the eloquent one. And she, she has uh, multiple skills. She embodies all of the aspects of um, uh, terpsichord. She can dance. She has geometry. And she has the ability to speak. So her uh, her name is like Polyhemnia. So she has many, many in her name, like Poly and many uh, in the song of it all put together. So I just wanted to share that for Polly before he's got to roll out. Big love, Polly Matthew. I give uh, I give thanks to these gods of eloquence, though, because, <laughs> you know, if they out there, they come through for us big time. <laughs> So true. So true. There's really like no greater feeling than having an eloquent flow of speech. I mean, there's a lot of great feelings in the world, but that's what that's really up there for me. So the what I want to also add about uh, Loki, <laughs> don't get triggered by this phrase, but Loki <laughs> is the epitome archetype of what is said in the social social sexual hierarchy of men to be the gamma male. <laughs> <laughs> because he's small he's jealous and he always thinks he's right and he's go he's got something to prove and most of all he's secretly the king <laughs> wow. like a little spiteful guy who's secretly the king and every, he's just waiting i'll show you i'm i'm the secret king you know right and you know you know what else is so funny uh so back when thor was a thing uh I got a. I associated with Thor, fucking blonde hero, uh, complex. Uh, yeah, he's alpha as fuck. Yeah, I totally was associated. I mean, my my ex at that time, she had a huge crush on Loki, and I was completely fucking offended. Completely oh. offended. <laughs> it was just like That's it was like a sign that should have been the sign that it wasn't going to work out. Yeah, man. I felt targeted. I felt completely targeted. <laughs> oh, Loki. Oh, man, Lochi. Good, good call, Alpha Warrior. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. in the house. Yeah, it is. It's um, and you know, there's a real thing about like popularizing that style of behavior in media. Like we see more examples of this type of character. Maybe, you know, there are problems with the behavior that are evident, but like they get like a redemption arc, you know, and uh, oftentimes the alpha character or like the, the strong man character gets more of a diminishment or like shown to be a buffoon or, you know, brought down. I mean, we see this with Thor where by the, uh, the latter Avengers movies, he's fat and depressed, you know, he's been brought down and uh, Loki gets kind of elevated to a hero role. And again, I think we should talk about the Loki series because I like it a lot. Overall, you see, you know, when I, when I say gamma male, I'm not like saying that there's people out there who are a certain rank in the sexual hierarchy and they're someone's one thing and there's, there's no moving out of it. It's not that they are that it's that behavior fits into categories archetypically. And so that's one thing I like about the Loki series is his, he learns why his behavior is not helpful to anybody, yeah. especially not himself. And he pulls himself out of that and becomes a good support character. You know, uh, usually someone who's got a lot of these traits like a Loki doesn't end up becoming an alpha, but they can at least start to be more of a supporter, like a right. filled role in the like social hierarchy in a healthy way. So I like that a lot about it. Yeah, I agree, man. Uh, I definitely... Uh, have big respect for the nonconformist spirit. Uh, and this is probably a good time to just kind of float this idea. I've been cooking on the uh, Diablo X Mechidna is like, you know, everybody knows about the uh, Dios X Mechina is a ancient uh, uh, theatrical technique uh, from the Greek plays where, you know, the writer will, uh, will fabricate an unresolvable uh, plot line. And at the very end of the of the story, some machine will descend from the rafters that will completely save the day and everything comes to uh, is uh, redeemed and solved by this machine. And generally, the machine embodies the spirit of the state somehow. On some level, they will be seeding the dominance of the state, the dominance of God or some collective, uh, you know, plot mechanism that's going to resolve everything. A lot of people know about that. Well, lately, I've been seeing it as a non-resolving uh, uh, theme that will actually keep people in a sense of no resolution uh, for a prolonged period. And that was totally uh, injected into the entire Marvel series throughout, because uh, even when they ran the, the, uh, the credits at the end of every episode, everybody's still sitting around. Even while the credits are rolling, they're like, are, is there going to be more? Isn't there going to be more? So you don't even have a sense of resolution, even when the credits are rolling. Then they give you a two minute little extra clip and you're like, oh, that was fun. But then they still stay in the seat because they even seated double extra scenes after double credit rolls. So oh, all, yeah. all of that plays to this uh, dissolving of the f sense of resolution that we used to get from film or cinema or even just little shows. In our, in our home, we get to go to sleep and have good dreams because everything was resolved. Uh, but that's not how they were rolling nowadays. Wow. That's super profound, man. And particularly, I know you were there whenever we talked to Carrie on that vibrant and we got into the topic of closure 
And it's been so powerful for me to invoke the closing of sacred space when I'm doing tuning ceremonies for people, particularly yeah, today. You know, when I, <laughs> that moment of, uh, of closing the sacred space with the client after the tuning and inviting for the grounding and releasing of any stuff that came up that needs to go completely during the session. And like, speaking of gods of eloquence, like that moment for me, words came through me as if inspired divinely that I was just watching come out of me and they affected me as much as I think they affected the client. And like this moment of uh, closing, I realized that the moment of closing the ceremony, doing it properly like that with the, the words that came through that I didn't even expect were like, not only do we close the sacred space and end this ceremony, but we're also closing the, the book on the patterns that we revealed in this tuning and going forward with an entirely new book of life. And so like, I realized that that closure and it's exactly the same with resolution in the movies or lack of that. You're, <laughs> you're able to close things out that need to go. You know, and leaving things hanging like that, there is something off about that. There's something weird about that. Nice. For sure. That's awesome. So now we're going to just go through uh, like the introduction of the main six Avengers. And I want to talk about their particular flavors of trauma. Because I think this is what really defines the Avengers series. And maybe it's a little mundane or maybe not, but. You know, I think this is important. Maybe it will help people see a little bit in themselves where they can um, let go of a pattern or, or two. Because I, th what you said about how rewiring can take place, I mm -hmm. think that there is like a identifying with certain characters, even unconsciously, and then taking on some of the energy, you know, through that openness. And again, like to reference tuning, what I, I see all the time, this guilt trauma that leads to self-punishment. And that self-punishment often comes in the form of the body, you know, punishing itself in some way. So what I see with Natasha, the Black Widow as a character, as the overall trauma is that she feels guilty for her past uh, as a murderous assassin. And so... <laughs> Somehow the rectification of that is to keep doing the murderous assassin, but just do it for the good guys and put herself in situations like we catch her in at the beginning of the film where she's tied up. She's getting slapped and getting interrogated, you know, you know, secretly she's interrogating them, but she's also getting punished, man. Like right. there, there's a taking on a, a like there's a penance. There's a self-flagellation to this character that we see again and again. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yes. Uh, and, and we find out, and this is kind of an example of they seed it uh, before we have the context for it. It is not until all the way when uh, at the end of the entire Marvel primary arc, it's during Black Widow that we find out why she's such a, uh, a program. The character has actually died, self-punished to the max, self-sacrificed. Right. right. Yep. Oh, right. Uh, I guess. Yeah, because she does. She dies it, uh, in the uh, in the very final one. But it's during Black Widow that we find out that uh, what they do for these death too. For the yeah. matter. She fought over somebody else wanted to die. They fought to die <laughs> over who's more selfless here. Uh, man, if Ayn Rand could have jumped in and narrated, <laughs> maybe save both their ass. 
but but, uh, <laughs> but ultimately it's in Black throw Widow. The, throw the Red Skull off the cliff and be done with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, but yeah, we find out in Black Widow that they actually um, they uh, they cut out their what is it a hysterectomy that they have required they are required uh, to have a hysterectomy. <sighs> And it's it's so profound, man. But it's not until after the whole arc that we find out. That's why she's so self-loathing. You know, she has oh, no that, generative profound. purpose. I forgot about that detail. Yeah, man. She, in the biofield, in the biofield anatomy, the womb area, the sacral chakra, what is removed in a hysterectomy is where stuck energy lives that has the flavor of guilt, shame, uh, repressed. Um, repressed frustration and resentment, which in this case, and for a lot of people that is actually self-directed. And if you have the self-directed resentment, self-directed frustration, it does get directed outwards too. And like with her behavior, you know, she has a history of violent behavior. (laughs) That is fascinating, man. It's literally the part of the body that regulates whether or not we are feeling this guilt and shame complex. and. You know, and how also that is sort of connected into the root where if we're holding on to this shame, a lot of times it comes out in like, we don't feel good about ourselves unless we push ourselves so far physically that we are self-punishing that, right. that there's like a guilt driven overdoing it. And her line of work is obviously that she doesn't have superpowers per se, but <laughs> her superpower is like super numbness, yeah. <laughs> which again, a, a dysfunctional sacral chakra so like a low energy sacral chakra, someone will feel a lot of pain in their body. But if it's just shut off as much as that can be without you being dead, people tend to be more numbed out in their body and able to totally disregard pain and like ignore feeling it at all. And so I think that super defines this character and that the biofield anatomy actually, you know, holds up to this particular example of how the sacral area in the womb pertains to this exact type of trauma. And right. this exact same type of self-flagellation and like being numb to it. Right. And, you know, I'm going to, this is a great weave, man. This is a really great weave. Uh, I want to bring back uh, uh, that part of the conversation where she, uh, from that vibrant where she was talking about walking on the hot coals and then keeping track of where the burns were on her feet. Uh, what, what's her name again? Gary Hummingbird. Yeah, it was it. Did a vibrant with her a couple of weeks ago. People will find that in the recent video archive. Yes, big love to her for bringing that forward. That she would actually track where her feet were uh, were sensitive or or taking in uh, burn from the or a result from walking on the coals. Uh, I didn't say it in that show. I uh, just didn't have the chance. But this is the perfect time to bring it back up. In martial arts, your weakness says a lot about your biofield as well uh, and your strengths. Some people have powerful legs and they know, and they can learn through the training to go to their legs as their, as their self-defense mechanism. Some people don't keep their dukes. They don't come back home with their dukes. So they have a weakness in their field, in their defense field. Well, something about uh, Romanoff here is her, my favorite move she does, it's like, a, it's very much like, uh, uh, I think it's called Pinkal Silat, is a, a 
it's a martial arts from the islands, uh, from the, it's a Filipino martial arts. And what she does, she'll climb up her opponent and she will use scissor legs to take them down. And it is so profound what that means when we, after we find out far on down the line that she had her, uh, her uterus removed by scissors cut out. So she's actually projecting her own trauma onto her opponent. And that's so profound. It's pretty next level stuff. And it reminds me of what uh, uh, Carrie Hummingbird brought forward. You learn a lot by uh, people, how people respond to stress and trauma. It's also one of the classic silly Hollywood things, like the way she throws people with their legs like that. And then they're just instantly dead or knocked out. <laughs> like <laughs> yes. they just get up and hit her, you know, like, <laughs> I, I, I get it that it's a movie, but my ability to suspend disbelief is quite uh, challenged by little women knocking out big dudes left and right. <laughs> it's right. Like not real. I'm sure you, I'm sure that, you know, your martial artist, not, me, I'm sure that you uh, probably get what I'm saying there. But then uh, Alpha Warrior DJ Mike, he says, interesting that the two Avengers with no super fat powers fight to die. Yeah. Actually, though, Hawkeye has some overlap with the particular type of trauma that Natasha has uh, and expresses yeah. it similarly. That uh, he has a, a bit of a different version of it, but there is like, he pick, he picks up her style of trauma later in the series when his family is deleted by the snap, then he goes on the killing spree of, you know, taking out uh, gangsters and mafia people. He becomes the Ronin. And so yeah. he actually get, takes on a similar type of guilt trauma because of actions that he can't take back when he's just like a good soldier, man, he doesn't have as much guilt over his misdoings. But in the first Avengers movie, there is some of that in the form of he gets mind controlled by Loki and goes and, uh, <laughs> you know, does some crimes under, under the mind control. Yeah. Okay. So next we have our, and there's, you know, we should bring up the relationship between Romanov and, and Banner in the context of the tarot. I want you to talk about that. We've talked about mm -hmm. it before, but it's worth bringing up again. And the Hulk has this trauma of wrath and over losing control, feeling like he's out of control. Um, there's probably more to it than that. Like, what do you think about Hulk and Banner, their particular trauma? And maybe even there's like some identity crisis, you know, on the form of like, there's sort of like uh, the nerdy guy versus the, the alpha male thing going on with him as well. Like, Right. That society doesn't accept the big, strong, aggressive guy. And yeah. so he's really would rather just hide out and, and be the, the, the puny banner. <laughs> right. I actually like his arc a lot because of the catharsis of, of merging the two identities. I, I really enjoy that. The, uh, the nerd Hulk is an excellent character. <laughs> yes. Yes. I totally agree. Uh, you so, I relate to Banner in so many ways. First of all, I am a Leo. His, uh, his tarot card is absolutely the strength card. You know, his password to activate the ship was the strongest Avenger. And, uh, and, uh, so in Leo, well, on the, on Alima, we are descending, uh, the tower is collapsing. We're going through a, a fall in his, uh, his modulation phrase 
to come out of Hulk mode and back into banner mode was the sun's getting low, big fella. And that was the password to switch him off. And that is exactly what is happening in August. The days are starting to get uh, shorter and you can actually start to notice it. It's like a bit of a quickening of sorts. And Banner does have some of the best one-liners throughout. And it's like we get a different Banner. He's so dynamic. We get a different Banner in almost every every episode. And if I I had to, uh, I have a little side weave where I've associated these characters with real historical personas. And I've associated Banner with uh, Howard Hughes. And there's a there's a whole lot of reasoning behind that. But one aspect of that is that Howard Hughes uh, became a recluse late in his life. And uh, the Hulk literally goes away and has to just leave to uh, to do some processing. And then when he comes back fully integrated, as Young would say, then he's able to be uh, uh, his secret becomes I'm always mad. And that's fucking such a badass one liner. Yeah, uh, Mike says here the Thor Ragnarok Thor three is the best Marvel film. I actually almost made that what our our weave was about for tonight. Yeah, you know, I'd if love I was going to get too. really granular with one movie, that would be a good one, and we might still bring that up. Uh, it's a good one. Um, yeah. So what I will say about so first of all, what your your weave, you know, I think the the weave, the weave that you brought forward years ago now about Romanov and Banner. And the strength card, sun's going down, the Leo season where the sun is actually starting to, you know, the, the sun in Leo is, even though the days are starting to get shorter, the sun is actually more furious at that time. You've heard, everyone's heard the phrase, the grapes of wrath, right? Mm-hmm. The grapes of wrath are talking about how that sun in Leo is furious heat. You know, it can, it can sap your strength. It can kill you. And then the harvest season coming out after that in Virgo has captured the rage of the sun at that time. And, you know, rage, rage, you can see the dying of the light, <laughs> that type of thing. And then you drink the wine made from those grapes with the wrath of the sun and you get that sort of Dionysian madness if you overdo it. And that sun's going down being the code phrase for Banner to, to come back is, like it's too, it's one of those elements that's like too specific. And this is where I would encourage people to go look at maybe your video with esoteric thoughts or other videos you've done on the tarot of the Avengers, because <laughs> the, this is the world, you know, being given a, everybody given a collective tarot draw in a way, in a, a specific order. And that's the social engineering program of it or the collectivism of it rather than your own one-to-one individual relationship with the tarot. I'm paraphrasing you with this. These are not my original insights about it, but I find that really valuable. And then in terms of, you know, why it is such a a triumphant maybe admission for Banner to say, I'm always angry (laughs) is and how that works out for him once he admits it, how that changes him eventually over time. Is that, you know, when, when I help people again with the biofield dealing with their repressed anger, the key is that what makes you angry is if you try to hold back the anger. That's what makes you explosive. That's what makes you hulk out later. The bottle, the pressure in the bottle gets too much and you explode. 
But if you allow yourself to have anger and you allow yourself to feel it and express it in the moment that it comes up and you get to a zero balance of any backlog of unexpressed anger, you will find that you don't have a lot of reasons to get angry. And what happens is you just dole out little bits of assertiveness in appropriate moments and your life gets more on track. You actually have less things that make you feel pissed off. I've seen it over and over again. And, uh, you know, (laughs) this is to get a little personal. I actually had a a revelation on my own of my own when I was doing a tuning for somebody recently working with their moment of repressed trauma where we found the instance as like a four-year-old or five-year-old for them where something happened that really made them angry, but their anger had no effect to influence the situation because they were a child. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, like I lived most of my life with this identifier of I don't get angry, angry people suck. And this repressed anger actually came out for me in the form of like right shoulder problems later in life and struggles to set boundaries and issues with psychic vampirism in relationships and playing the role of the, the victimized empath and very much in a similar way as what happens with Banner. Like he's victimized by the way he's being used by Nick Fury and he's being used by such and such. And they just want the green guy, you know, <laughs> they don't really want him. And what I, I realized about myself while doing this tuning for somebody was like, Oh man, I had a moment like this. The mo- like I want everyone to open up to the possibility. If you feel like you're one of these strictly easygoing people that can't get angry or doesn't allow yourself to get angry to consider like, was there a point in your life, maybe in childhood that mirrors in any way, this experience that I had where I was a five-year-old Oh, wife just came home. Dogs are going to be barking a little bit, but I was a five-year-old and they took me to get my kindergarten shots. And I, something inside me just was like, no. And as a five-year-old, I hulked out and I was like punching and kicking and screaming and crying and like refusing to comply. And I had to be held down and they gave me the kindergarten shots anyway. And it occurred to me that that was the moment in my life where for me, anger didn't was ineffective and embarrassing and, you know, outright hurtful all around the whole experience. And that was the moment where I was like, from then on, I set up this belief program of, I don't get angry. Angry people suck and became hypersensitive to other people's anger in a way that was not helpful or healthy for my body or constructive at all. So, you know, it's still something that is like a, not necessarily I'm perfect at, but Overall, like why I explain all this and what I hope is helpful about this series of exploring the trauma types is that if you identify that way at all, maybe consider and be open to like, I'm allowed to feel anger and express it in the moment where it's appropriate. Because that feeling or emotional flavor of anger is the color green. (laughs) It is. It's a heart chakra thing. It lives in the heart chakra and it will burn up your heart chakra to keep it in because that energy is part of your overall spectrum as a human being, regardless of if you allow yourself to feel it, perceive it or express it. And it's the same exact resonance as assertiveness and healthy levels of aggression, which especially men need, but everybody needs. There's a time where you need to be a little assertive and a little aggressive. And if you allow it, you'll only ever need a little bit at a time and it will help you navigate your life in the direction that is most in alignment with who you are. Man. Great weave, brother. Great weave. Good share too, man. Yeah. You know, uh, 
So A-N-G-E-R-G-R-A-E-N. Grain is actually an anagram for anger. Uh, if, you're, if, you, if you allow me the A to the E switch. Um, and uh, also uh, something that was, I mean, late in my life, I was like a, a huge weight lifted off my shoulder was uh, to meditate on the fact that anger is not hate. Gordo! Buddy, welcome, buddy. I'm still messing with, I'm trying to move my stuff back. And so I've messed up my my mic stand thing here and I'm trying to figure it out. We'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah buddy. Gabe's on leave anyway, but you know, welcome, yeah, it's buddy. It's all good. Thanks, man. Good, good to Sorry, see you, like, champion. So, uh, you're good. So, yeah, so uh, we're kind of talking about banner here and how, uh, you know, anger is not the same as hate. And in fact, uh, if you really think about it, anger, yeah, man, yeah. Anger, you can see a person behaving angrily. It can actually be, you know, uh, uh, empirically obvious on the face of it. Hate is actually a projection or a presumption that can only come from another person's interpretation. You can't have another person tell you that you're acting hatefully. There's something very different and very important that we make that differentiation between anger and hate because anger uh, was explained to me. And I love this is merely a demand for something better. And it's okay to demand for something better. And maybe it helps you to frame the, what you need to say in those words to say, listen, I'm demanding something better and I'm not being hateful. Uh, because people uh, in this day and age, people really love to paint everything as hate. And that's uh, that's not what's up. That doesn't work that way. So uh, I offer that up to anybody who needs hate to just say. is eight. And it's the eight. And eight <laughs> is the strength card. Eight is the strength Whoa. card. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you don't express your anger healthfully, you will end up experiencing a lot of self-hate because of it. And it will boil up and turn into unhealthy uh, projections. Nice. Yeah. So, Gordy, what we've gone through so far is we talked about the Tesseract and the Hypercube and the fake math. And uh, glad that you weren't here for us to talk shit on space because I know that's, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> we might make him hulk out. But uh, <laughs> he's like, it's not flat. <laughs> But uh, we also, we talked about Natasha's particular type of trauma, this like guilt that causes self-directed, you know, put yourself in situations to get hurt because you feel guilty and all that. Um, We got into Banner just there. And, you know, if you have things to say on those two characters at all, or in particular in the vein of uh, how the movies are describing their trauma and playing on that, we can, or we can jump into to Steve because uh, Steve's got some interesting elements too. Yeah, every single one of them do. They they all have trauma, right? I mean, every single one they haven't gotten to where they are without some sort of traumatic event. And you notice how so many of these uh, these characters, especially Natasha and uh, Winter Soldier, it's all mind control. It's all, they've all been brainwashed at some point in the, their origin story. Right, exactly. They're showing you how it's done. 
Oh man, I can't wait for Gabe's uh, slam dunk weave about Bucky <laughs> later. Yeah, let's, uh, keep, let's keep going. What are, who are we oh, talking about? Okay, so yeah. uh, Steve. Oh, hey. Yeah. Oh, I was, yeah. Gordy? I was going to, it's too hot right now, but I was going to, I found all my nerd gear and I found like this Captain America football jersey. Whoa. Nice. Look at, uh, see, year 41. Oops, where's my thing? Here we go. But look, wow, number, why number 41? That was the year uh, 1941 Captain America was created. Wow, and that's the 13th prime cool. number. Right there. And Cap could have his own uh, show, Avenger show too, just about all that like Nazi wartime propaganda elements a bit. Gordy probably had a lot on that. But in terms of trauma as like the type of trauma that the character in this film is um you know swayed by or influenced by this is this guy's definition fomo you know he's got the <laughs> fear of missing out is a mm-hmm. big part of cap's entire arc it, there's actually this scene where he's punching the bag we're being introduced to him in this film he's already got had captain america one as a movie so he's in the present he's punching the bag he's having flashbacks of his old life in the past before he got put on ice and brought into the present. And specifically one of the lines that flashes in his mind is there's not enough time, you know, Mm. there's not enough time. And I see, I find it interesting that that is his particular trauma or issue because He's the leader of the Avengers, right? Like if we're putting them on a totem pole of, you know, and, and correlating that to shockers in a way, he's the crown. He's the Kater. He's the, he's the leader. He's the top. He's sort of the, so, like the sovereign of the group. And man, oh man, in Civil War, does that cause problems of him wanting to like have his own sovereignty, which is kind of what America's about. <laughs> we can talk about that as much as we want at, at this point or later, but. That the crown chakra, I know I relate everything back to the biofield and and all that, but it's because it's so fucking real. And like that lens to look at life through is really helpful. And so one of the things with the crown chakra is if there is uh, jammed up energy there, a lot of times it it, it comes up in the form of a, a like a bad relationship with time. And this is something I see a lot is like that the bad relationship with time is feeling like there's not enough of it and that you're not getting enough done. And, the, and you know, it go, kind of goes back to that guilt of uh, similar to Natasha's guilt. But that I think that's a big part of Steve's thing is the FOMO trauma, which people are really susceptible to, you know, in this ruled by the clock, ruled by Kronos world where you might be out at the movies, but in the back of your mind, you're thinking like, it's only 12 hours till I got to clock in and be at the, uh, the office on Monday morning. You know, like there, there's so much liberation in getting out of that type of rat race or being on someone else, someone else's schedule, or at the least being in, um, on a schedule that works for you and the, like work that you enjoy, but, or, or coming to peace with time and realizing there's always enough, you know, at the very least to have that mindset of there's always enough. Cause I just remember, you know, when I had jobs that I didn't really love, that I would always be, no matter what I was doing, that back in my mind of like, I got to go to work at this time. <laughs> and Steve even says that sometimes. I got to go to work. <laughs> time to go to work, I think. 
uh, <laughs> anyway, I think that FOMO trauma is big for, um, for the youth and for the working class and like all the things they feel like maybe they miss out on because of, uh, of time constraints. And then of course there's the element of Steve that he's the fool card. <laughs> and I know Gabe's got a lot of weaves on that, but what do you guys think? FOMO trauma, um, anything to say on, on that or additions to like what you perceive as is going on with Steve. You first Gordy. Oh, we're not hearing you. All right. Yeah. Messing with my microphone. Sorry. Um, his origin story is clearly, you know, he's the, he's the nerdy kid that could never, uh, he was the one that was picked on. He was, so he was going to be the one to pick on the bullies. That was his whole thing, right? Where he's going to get, he's going to avenge the downtrodden, right? So that kind of, that kind of, uh, trauma, like, is especially like, Somebody giving, getting those kind of power, that kind of power in such a short amount of time, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have ended up as well as I think they write it to be. Like in real life, the trauma with some, something that would happen like that would, the narcissism would be so out off the charts. You'd have a Loki with a Tesseract type of deal. Or little man with a bunch of power all of a sudden. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And his ego that he hasn't dealt with and that, that stuff will, uh, you know, you don't kill the ego, but you need to, to be control of that thing, you know, being control of your manhood and your responsibilities and that kind of thing. And those are the lessons that you don't hear about, you know, in these kind of stories that are real transformational stories. Yeah, man. Gabe, I, I think maybe you have something to add about like how symbolic of the, the Christian right wing. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. Well, uh, on the FOMO, I just want to say he literally experiences future shock when he wakes up and realizes he was uh, knocked out. It's at the end of his, uh, the first Captain America he wakes up and realizes he's living in the future and he jumps through walls, jumps, so jumps through windows. He's jumping all over like the full car. And then he realized that he jumped through time and he's standing in the middle of traffic and he's uh, looking around with all these lights and advertising everywhere. There's a Corona bottle on one tower over one shoulder and there's a coronavirus over on another tower on the other shoulder. And down below is a mask, a uh, Phantom of the Opera mask. And it's a big fat revelation. And above his head is the HBC Bank, which is like Dutch India Trade Company. Do we have a state, uh, a still of it? I'm pulling one up right now. Which one is a great, great call? Yes. And that's That's the Dutch. In that moment of realization, they're they're giving everything away all in one one little snippet. Because it's so far in advance. That movie came out a long time ago way before everything in the HBC bank emblem above him uh, is the Dutch India trading company. And that right there is uh, telling, you know, all of the, the sovereignty consciousness that we've been drumming up for so long, how, how spot on they were and how, you know, they, the hand in that glove is the same hand it's been for a very long time. Um, 
But then also, you know, I see him nice. Yeah, good grab. And look, there's two towers. You know, it's like the trigger of triggers. Mm. And then, yeah, and then you got the Phantom of the Opera mask. He's even got a pole over his shoulder. You know, the fool card has the pole with his, his bag of goodies. Well, look how that light pole is just like the fool cards, fool cards, a stick. And then he's got a bag of everything he's going to need. Well, that bag is the fucking coronavirus. It's it's so and the sun, the corona of the sun as well. I mean, it's all just like it unpacks so it's amazing over the correct shoulder. Yeah, it's even over the right shoulder. And and the uh, the mask is his is the dog down in that corner. That's his animus, you know. So this is telling you that your persona, the mask, is the you know the false identity, the Apollonian uh, false matrix construct. Um, it's re- it's really next level. Uh, but my theory is uh, he represents JFK in a very interesting way. He represents the uh, the religious right who who has you know a very uh, righteous. Uh, stance in life wants to do everything perfectly believes that the founding fathers were good solid christians and would have a lot of hard time real you know when they find out what the original lyrics to the uh to the uh american uh, the national anthem the original lyrics are like praise mercury and uh Dionysus and all these other not Christian gods it's very pagan the original lyrics you know those kind of things would rub that the spirit of Captain America the wrong way and then one last thing i yeah, recently he, even he meets thor a norse god and he's still like there's only one god ma'am <laughs> good call that is uh, that encapsulates it in big time uh anagram it's kind of like for a Ca- denial of um a lot of the a lot of Christians to even look under the other rock, you know, to even see how there's similarities between traditions in a way right. that could be helpful, could be conciliatory, could be cathartic. If everyone involved could just maybe loosen up a bit on the identity of it right. and, and just try to bond over the wisdom in various traditions where they, those traditions reflect nature, the one and only truth. You know, anything valuable in one tradition or the other would have to be the same type of value in a way. But um, there's also, you know, a big weave about the repressed homosexuality of the right that goes on with Captain America. Yes, because of his buddy Bucky. uh, It's totally, you know, a closeted issue that they that's kind of explicit if you've got the eyes to see it. But uh, I got an anagram for Captain America. Can't pay. Captain is can't pay in America. This is weird. A chimera can't pay. A chimera can't pay. Just thought I'd throw that on the table. Oh, and he's JFK. That's a his historical persona that he's an overlap of is JFK because he's got the bullseye target on him, uh, and also his shield is a flat Earth model which is the fool card. You go off the edge of the flat earth and you, you jump off the cliff. That's totally fool card uh, signaling, so to say, or maybe it's the firmament. It's got stars on it, right? No trigger, no trigger. Uh, Well, I think this is a good point, Gabe. We're talking about 
the JFK of it. I would like to get into Captain America three and talk a little bit about the, what you discovered right there at the onset of the movie, because to me, that's a specific of a thing that is only there for those who know as the whole Pegasus Tesseract weave at the beginning here. Really? Yeah, Yeah, man. Uh, I loved that weave. Uh, Maybe even you can send me images if you got them. Uh, Uh, I I could also scrub through the film and, and find the images myself. Uh, well, there's some in the telly, in our Marvel telly. Uh, you can pull up some of those. I know they're kind of scrappy, but they definitely help me bring my thoughts back. Uh, but one one thing that is interesting to consider is that um, uh, Captain America, it, in the chronology of the Marvel Universe, Captain America comes first. He predates all the other story arcs. So he, even though it didn't come out in that order, which is kind of part of the you know, the CERN scramble um, is that we're, uh, they, they didn't lay this out chronologically. It's on us to go back and figure out, you know, who came before who. Um, but that makes sense that Captain America is the earliest because he's the full card. It's the zero. It's the symbol. It's not the number. It's a symbol. And a symbol becomes his, you know, his big uh, apotheosis line. That's funny. I think that, um, in the line, you know where you know how Wolverine is Weapon X, right? His Weapon X is symbol for ten, right? Can't I remember Captain America was supposed to be one, right? In this okay. this series of of testing of super soldiers, right? Yeah, but I think he's zero. Point. I think you're right. I think he's zero. Really? Because well, the full card can be zero or one depending on where you put it in the major arcana. Right. Oh, really? It's, it's okay. The first card, but it's number zero in a way. And that's kind of that's kind of the magic of the full card. I really love that we're bringing this up. It's the rule of Kalel. It's the fact that you know you kind of have to be in two worlds. You have to be thinking alphabetically and numerically. You have to think about how one leads into the next, and it, right. and it also relates to the one before it mm-hmm. in a strange way. And that's, that's what comic writing is. I mean. Mm-hmm. you just build on it and build on it and you have story arcs and among story arcs and story arcs. And like, I, I was, we were talking about how uh, comic books like have been kind of shaping our world, if not brainwashing us since we were kids personally, six, I was six. Yes. You know, and um, I think about that with uh, all these stories. Cause I, you know, I, the movies are too much. I, I, I can't keep up with everything. I couldn't keep up with the, the comics in the nineties. You know, I kind of, I started falling out of, of really getting comic books in the, in the nineties. Of course it was some pretty crappy stuff until image came back and like, there was a good run there with Marvel right before Disney took over. Right. That was the window, that little golden window of like where digital art was finally not looking weird. Mm -hmm. And so the art quality was like, Whoa, really good. And a lot of fun stuff going on in the narratives. And then Disney took over and all the heroes gender swapped instantly Mm -hmm. or, or race (laughs) changed. So I had like a little run of collecting comics between like 2012 to 2015. And by 2015 is where it was really getting ugly. But yeah, there was a, there's a nice window there. 
Yeah, man. And keeping it like all the, all the different lines that you can't keep track of, like part of the, the, like here, this is like that breeding of that FOMO. Like, yeah. Oh, I can't have that next thing. I can't have that next thing. And this is what we, they train us with, uh, trading cards and, and, uh, you know, with Pokemons and, limited oh, editions chimera because there's so many different b- right, books different versions and you can't pay for the whole chimera right yeah yeah so you'll America never know all the secrets right and you know that is like the the fomo thing kind of plays into that dynamic of uh stark uh joins on to the collective uh higher authority and uh and captain america he has to go rogue because he might have to have somebody else tell him not to respond to an emergency. And so in a strange way, that defining attribute is what keeps him from joining on to the, uh, to the United Nations, you know, out, outsourcing his, uh, his sovereignty to the United Nations, which Starks ends up doing and ends up regretting it. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, and- on the note of the, of Cap representing Kennedy, Yes. First of all, I think you're so in the money about that. There's actually uh, in the ultimate comics that I used to collect, there's an entire arc called uh, death of Spider-Man where yeah. there's this storyline where uh, Captain America is going to be assassinated by the Punisher in like a, you know, shooter in the tower type of way. Uh-huh. And uh, Spidey actually takes the hit <laughs> and saves him. But there are probably at least there's probably at least one other storyline maybe in the main Marvel 616 where Captain America actually gets assassinated. I bet that's been done before. Gordy right. probably knows about it. But so I want to talk <laughs> about this, this uh, weave in the Captain America three with the Kennedy thing. But I want to just right. show it's only a minute long. The first commercial after JFK was shot. Oh, I have, right. I have it yeah. locked and loaded. We're going to go there. All right. right. See this again. You know, or, uh, Gabe has done great work on this. There's so much devil in the details with this, but I think we just, I think we got to go there. I think we got to yeah. go there. Yeah. This, this is a two parter, at least, by the way, what we're doing tonight. I think it's a two parter. I'm just accepting it. I like getting into the details, having a great time. So yeah, this buddy. is the first commercial after JFK was shot. If you didn't know about this now, you know. Here we go. It takes more than an instant to make a real cup of coffee. That's why Nescafe has come up with a new kind of coffee. It's more than an instant. It's new Minute Brew Nescafe. Anybody can make a coffee more instant, but Nescafe makes it more coffee. A new kind of coffee. Minute Brew. Minute Brew Nescafe is a new discovery, a new way to hold in extra rich flavor. So please help us. Let it brew in the cup a few seconds longer for all that extra flavor to come out. In other words, with Minute Brew Nescafe, it takes a little longer, but you get a lot more coffee. If you agree it takes more than an instant to make a real cup of coffee, buy this completely new kind of coffee today. New Minute Brew Nescafe. It's more than an instant, yet costs no more. New Minute Brew Nescafe. Yeah, sorry, Bear Pelagic, for uh, doing an ad for your competitors. Bear Pelagic Coffee. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a lot to that. Uh, I mean, we could weave on many elements of that, and we won't get into the the devil in the details, maybe, unless Gabe wants to throw some out. But this assassination 
followed by coffee commercial. This is what America saw. Literally hypnotism, you know, like take this trauma in, take it in. Uh, we're yes. going to build off of this trauma for years to come. And I think I, I forget how many times they say the word new in that commercial. They say the word new over and over. They just drill it in. And what, what did they call the lockdowns? They called it the novel coronavirus. This is the new normal. It's so profound because you're, uh, you're, your uh, fight or flight response is sensitive to novelty. Uh, And so uh, seeding the idea of it being new, it just uh, tips the scales in their favor that you're going to react the way they want you to. Um, And another thing, um, there's a scene right after, do you have any of those graphics uh, from the telly that I threw together? There's, oh, um, maybe could, could you forward me something specific real quick? I'm not sure if I'll stay on if I just try to. Oh, okay, okay. I'll give it a look. I'll give it a look. It's in our it's in our Marvel telly. So the opening to Captain America three Civil War, um, which is uh, the Temperance card. I mentioned this earlier. Temperance card. You you move the R in the word Temperance, and you get Trump, Trump, Pence. So Trump and Pence was a, uh, a Civil War spell. Um, also, I want to point out that the JFK being on ice and then coming out in the future, that's part of the QAnon mentality. You know, those people thought that JFK was going to come save the day. It's like a crazy hero spell. King Arthur. John McAfee, yeah. too. They, everybody keeps expecting John McAfee to come back, back to life. McAfee? 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 McAfee. Good call. Good call. Mm-hmm. So, so the very opening scene is uh, absolutely fascinating. 1991, I'm pretty sure they're in Siberia. Siberia was a penal colony. You used to be able to look up the history of the penal colonies and connect the dots for when the American Revolution popped off. It was because America was a penal colony and we weren't going to take it anymore. So when we popped off the revolution, guess what? They handed that torch over to Australia. And so, but now you try to look up that fact and it's a little bit harder and harder to find every day. Well, Siberia was a penal colony as well. And these facts are so profound. Uh, And it brings up Ross Putin as well. There's so many things packed into these little fine details. So the very opening scene, uh, there's a Russian soldier and he's walking into a compound uh, where there are two soldiers framing the door. And the two soldiers have to turn the key at the same time. So there's your nuclear trigger switch uh, implication. So the two guys turn the key at the same time. That's also the keys of the Vatican, the, the symbol for the coat of arms of the Vatican. And then he goes in an elevator, down the elevator shaft. Well, the, that opening scene of him going in the elevator shaft is actually uh, built into some artwork from a very influential psychologist. Uh, who uh, we'll, maybe we'll get to that if James pulls up the graphic. And then he uh, goes in the elevator and he starts putting in a, a numeric code on a touch keypad. And I haven't really ciphered out exactly what is in there. I'm looking, I'm seeing uh, 17 is a star card. 28 is probably a moon indication. So you got the moon and the star. Well, that's, and then, uh, so it's 17286 is the code he puts in. So 17 is the star card. 28 is the moon. Six is probably the magic square of the sun. It's a six by six magical square. It's not the tarot number. Yeah, I threw all of this together in the standard slick dissident collage format. <laughs> and then, yes. So 
then he goes and then a uh, a vault opens up and he grabs this red book well there are a couple of very influential red books we should maybe think of and both of them seem to be a fit it's not either or i think it's both and here hmm. carl jung's the red book and sure enough the art that carl jung made this little art collage on the bottom right that is a perfect fit for the scene where he walks into the elevator and there's two soldiers, one on either side to open in the keys. It fits Carl Jung's art in the red book. In the other red book is uh, Mao Zedong's, uh, the communist, whatever, the, this communist propaganda book. Uh, so I just kind of threw all this together. And uh, so then that, that fella, he takes that book and he reads, uh, I think it's 10 you could say 11 trigger words to activate Bucky the super soldier on. So he's receptive to take on a mission because he's programmed to kill. Uh, so after he goes on his mission and comes back and, uh, Oh, so the red book is the first flash of real brilliant color that we get in the whole, in the whole film is this red flash of the red book. Bucky goes on his mission and he comes back. And when he completes the cycle, he hands him a package full of blue serum. And so the red is counterbalanced or there's closure, the counterpart, the, uh, the anode and the cathode is uh, redeemed when he comes back and gives him the blue serum uh, in, a, in a closed case. So there's just something fascinating about the balance of the red to the blue that's going on in that scene. Well, then the next thing they cut to after we watch all this uh, trigger programming uh, being laid to bear, MK Ultra to the max. The next thing they show us is Romanoff sitting there stirring her coffee. She literally is stirring it just like in the commercial. She like taps the little, she taps the bell, ding, ding, ding. So all of that is our Pavlovian response. We're being triggered, programmed, whatever. And they flash the words present day. Guys, they're showing their hand. They're presenting their yod. They're showing their hand. This is a flashback to the Nescafe commercial. The uh, and, or, uh, synonyms for present, the first one is instant. <laughs> instant is the first synonym for present. They're presenting their yod. Guess what else present day is? You move the DA around from the present day and you get president. President with the big fat yod, the hidden hand to, of it all is the Y shape. Uh, notice the rifle in Nescafe, the logo up at the top. It's literally a rifle with a bullet coming out of it. Um, a little hard to see in this graphic, but uh, Gabe has got all kinds of beans spilled on this particular subject. You can, uh, I'm going to find the link to that video if anyone wants to, you know, pull it up for later. Right. Yes. And uh, Nescafe instant uh, coffee is a big fat anagram for the devil card in the creepiest, craziest way I ever thought possible. I did a little video on it. Um, but then uh, and it's not and it's no stretch at all, because as soon as uh, she gets done stirring her coffee, she's scoping the street. Well, then they do a cut scene to Captain America. He's up in a window of like a hotel and he's scanning the street below. In their plot, they're, uh, they're planning uh, a caper, we'll say. And so it is such a powerful parallel to the JFK spell uh, that it just boggles the mind. But yeah, President Yod, they're presenting their hand uh, when they do that little coffee encode right there. 
So Gordy, you're a bit older than us and might even have more insights into the way the whole JFK trauma ritual <laughs> has played out. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. Gabe just spilled a lot of beans. Yeah. And I got to, I want to mention also, we got a Kennedy coming up for the candidacy. There's a, there's a Kennedy in line for the seat. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think the, the whole, it's played out. Like everybody knows all this stuff. Sure. Right? Yeah. You were, Gabe is just revealing the, the methodology of the, how they've been telling us this stuff the whole time. Um, so I don't, I don't know that there's anything I can add other than you're all being mind controlled. Everybody who is in the, the sound of my voice, you <laughs> are a victim of mind control. <laughs> well, so just, that one has been seeded it. so thoroughly in the culture with other aspects to the triggering of that trauma. Uh, the king killing of the king ritual, if you will, the deep, sovereignizing, you know, hitting you in the crown that I think that there's maybe part of the strategy with that. This is just speculation is that certain elements of it, if you can call back the energy in a, I don't know, magical way, like Gabriel just demonstrated with the Nescafe commercial following the assassination and then the assassination scene in Captain America three, followed by present day stirring the coffee that, uh, then it's like prime, you know, it's also calling back the other elements of the ritual, the ticking of the uh, pendulum, you know, the hypnotist pendulum. Because what happens right after that scene, Gabe, is, you know, I have it in my slides. Let me just find the slide that is relevant. But uh, what happens after that? Bioweapons leak in, in a market. In a market with a umbrellas. A, a virus leak in a market. Yep, with umbrellas everywhere. Hypnotizing you to be afraid of that. That's the hypnosis spell here. It is so profound. And this is all before everything went down. You know what I mean? They were just seeding people's consciousness. And a lot of people weren't weren't turned on. Uh, But that's the other thing. Like, how could they have known that they were picking up on it? And then when when the shit goes down, they're not thinking about Avengers. They think that this is not fiction. They think that there's a difference between this shit in the cinema and what people are talking about out on the streets. They think there's a difference, uh, but it is. It's fiction. It's curse of fiction. 100%. Which one is this one? Is Captain this America Civil? 3. Is that Civil War? Yeah, we're including this in the conversation because <clears throat> it might as well be Avengers 2.5. Right. Yeah, man. Yep. Uh, and uh, oh, I'm trying to think. There was a lot to the... Uh, to that i mean it's basically the wet market you know what i mean um it is it's literally that yeah and like you know there's also fears of paramilitary terrorists and all that that go with it your whole counter-strike video game call of duty feel to the scene uh get, gordy's a little frozen but this is something that um i wanted to add to the equation in case we end up hitting you know getting a hit with this that in some way, if there's resonance to Kennedy in the upcoming film, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, right. because we have, as uh, Jenny pointed out to me, Arnold Schwarzenegger married a Kennedy, and then he has a daughter with that Kennedy, who is thus in the Kennedy family. 
Chris Pratt has married the daughter of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, what's her fucking name? Uh, Catherine. Catherine Schwarzenegger. Married to Chris Pratt. So family tie-wise, Chris Pratt, who is Star-Lord or Peter Quill in the Guardians of the Galaxy series with Marvel, he's a Kennedy now, like legitimately in the family and has been since 2019. So he's being teased or like we're being teased in the trailers that in Guardians of the Galaxy 3 that that character might be killed off, might die. So I'm very curious to see if we find any like other sinks to Kennedy assassination hypnosis programming with that film because you know, then we'll know we're really onto them. <laughs> right. Catch it like that. And not you to know, mention there's a Kennedy in, in the running for potential white house uh, candidacy coming up know. as well. Yes. And he's a, he's a junior. Uh, junior is a one and a nine. So that's a sun card. Uh, very interesting correspondence there. And also I'm just now thinking of a uh, Schwarzenegger is a uh, dark anger, but it's also got that, uh, um, head again we have like a dark head and kennedy was like a is gaelic for a uh uh gruesome head wound or ugly head wound also it's like a a knotty knotty hair like because his hair was hair sprayed uh in in place it was like a helmet that's it a knotty helmet that's what it that's the other meaning of it and it's got any in his name and anything any makes me think Enneagram 100 plus cent. <laughs> okay. So uh, kind of back to like just a little bit of character analysis. The other main Avenger here, we haven't touched on yet. Iron Man. Um, mm, and- we do a whole episode just on. Oh, for sure we could, you know, so that's why I'm kind of gearing the conversation towards his particular flavor of trauma as it is seated and expressed throughout the Avengers series. Cause it's more like the, his arc in the Iron Man trilogy. I haven't watched that for ages, but I think it's a bit different than his arc in the Avengers movies. They're kind of two separate things for him. Cause Iron Man three, where it came out in the timeline, you know, is before Avengers stuff. So my point being, I think that a big part of Tony Stark trauma seeding into, you know, if there is predictive programming here is about like getting the character because we identify with him as far as the audience goes. He's kind of like he's more relatable and people are more prone to being like identified or or liking him even than Captain America, the so-called leader, even though it may be like a social sexual hierarchy where he's more of like a Sigma type or whatever, but he's got this fear of the future that gets implanted in him in this movie. We're kind of seeing a foreshadowing of it here when he's looking at the cube, but this he's the futurist, but he's terrified of the future. Right. And um, we see more echoes of that, that we'll talk about when we get into maybe the progression into Avengers two a little bit, but why I think that is important is because most of the predictive programming trauma stuff that in particular is seated in the second Avengers movie. Uh, and, you know, in, in the uh, end game infinity war doubleheader with all the cooties metaphor to it. It's about the, like this guy is all about 
what they I think the they's involved with this movie in terms of the mind control aspect want to achieve, which is to get everyone worried about the future. That's always been the, the thing. Climate crisis, nuclear war, yada, yada, something bad happening in the future. Right. Oh, right. Oh, even pre-crime. He's he is seated with a vision of a dark future, uh, which is kind of like them seeding this idea that they can see your thoughts. They can see your worst fears and play off of them, which a lot of people believe they're, you know, their phone. Yeah. We've seen, we've seen what our phones are doing with these commercials. It is, it's pretty creepy. Mm -hmm. And it, and this is such a good picture. Great weave chance on the fear of the future. You know, it's like he's looking into a crystal ball right now. And that's, it's kind of like what we're talking about with the phones reading for the commercials. Don't they show it too? Like his uh, childhood trauma that of how, isn't there a flashback somewhere in Tony's story where, where he goes back and he's just trying to get, uh, just trying to make his dad proud, you know, just trying to live up to his dad's expectations that were, were never, never attainable to begin with it, you know? So there's that childhood trauma that they're, they're manipulating there. He's used to make himself what he is, creates the superpower, but also creates this narrative where he's controllable by that thing. Right. 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 Yeah. He creates a, a augmented reality that allows him to rehash his final moments with his parents, uh, which is basically just him. Uh, and he doesn't really even resolve it. Even in his demonstration of it, he kind of fucks it up. He barely does it right. You know, he he, he had all those opportunities and he just barely says it in a, in a redeeming fashion. That's a, yeah. That is a theme. You know, his, his story is interesting too. When he, I mean, he's an arms dealer. He, and he gets, uh, he gets, uh, fucked by the, the military, right? And that's when he comes back and, and he's like, you can't have this, you know, this is mine. You can't have this. And then they take it anyway. Yes. But then you notice, and later on, he still sides with the government on, Unlocking all the, the Sokovia Accords, right? right? Yep. He still sides with them, even though he knows better. He's controlling. Totally. totally. Yeah. You know, I come. I'm coming to realize. Uh, Tony represents the uh, the public facing side, um, because uh, in the end yeah. of one of his defining moments, he comes out and his closing line is, "I am Iron Man." Mm-hmm. And then Captain America is kind of representing the private side. He wants to operate in the uh, in the shadows, un, you know, untethered to that UN accord. Um, and then he ends up becoming a criminal, or you know, set up to be uh, in the criminal position. So there is something interesting about that split in the Civil War that one is uh, public facing, one is private facing, and they're both uh, accusing one another of being the most dangerous when you believe that you're right about something. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> jumping ahead to his death there in the end of the Avengers tri- series, that moment, um, you know, we get actual little, little hints that he's the, he's the Jesus character of the series after all, mm-hmm. that he's the redeemer Messiah character. And, uh, 
Man, there's so much that we could actually say about the public versus the private element and how Captain America, the Civil War is revolving around uh, surveillance state and whether or not we have the right to privacy. Basically, in a nutshell, for people out there unfamiliar, Captain America 3, the Civil War between the superheroes with one side led by Captain America and one side led by Iron Man is that the government decides that the to be a superhero, they can't operate independently. They have to work for the government and register and, you know, no secret identity allowed and all of that. <laughs> so um, being the technocrat, the futurist, you know, the, the future being all devices are watching all the time. The AI guy, Tony Stark, he's not, a, he's not for privacy. He feels like he wants to be controlled. He feels like, the responsibility of having to decide for yourself what's right and wrong is actually too much for him. And he feels guilt. There's even like, man, we might need to just go more deep and granular into Captain America three in the future. But that, uh, you know, (laughs) they, they literally, they, they rip open the wound of successful white male guilt, racism, privilege that he has this moment where he's like exposing his deepest trauma while he shows this technology that allows him to relive, you know, his memories that are trapped in his, uh, is the fascia of his body or in the synapses of his brain or whatever that like, they're telling you that trauma lives in your body, that it's there's like the ghost of that electricity is still there until it's worked out. Right. So he's exposing that he shows his greatest vulnerability, his greatest trauma. He leaves the stage and a black lady comes up to him and is like, you Avengers killed my son. He was collateral damage in one of your big battles. And so there it is. White man guilty for black repression, right? Like that's a big thing that Hollywood is always pushing on you. Like you're not allowed to feel good about yourself if you're succeeding at all, because if you succeed, it means somebody else loses. It's kind of like the zero sum game that is always being pushed about that. Yeah, man, there's a, there's a, there's a huge thing on the race baiting with uh, Captain America three, uh, and the fact that uh, you know Tony, uh, his his uh, cohort or the guy who's like his acolyte who takes on a suit is a black dude, and ends up getting injured, and so he takes on the weight of that injury. Uh, and yes, even exactly, black Panther, it comes back yep. like that is not just a one off thing. That 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 yep. program of trauma over guilt over other races. Uh, yes, yes. Constantly being brought up with Tony. Yep. And then uh, Black Panther, his father dies in the UN bombing. And uh, ultimately, when they capture Captain America and say, and it's a black dude pointing a gun at Captain America saying, congrats, Cap, you're a criminal. Well, then he turns after saying, you're a criminal, Captain America. He turns to uh, Black Panther and he bows to him and says, Hey, your majesty. And he literally bows to the, to the black Panther guy. So there's this crazy race baiting ingredient that is like really, uh, pretty hard on the nose. If you, uh, if you didn't notice it before, I'm pretty sure a lot of people picked up on it, but he's literally like arresting Captain America and bowing to the Royal family of Africa in the most fascinating way. Uh, and there's, you know, there's one more weave. Uh, I know we're coming to the end. I just want to make sure I get this out because I think it's really fascinating. Can you make sure to get to the the Manchurian candidate of it all? Well, because um, I mean, since Kennedy stuff was in this 
episode. Yeah. I want yeah. to also talk about how oh yeah the yeah. whole notion of the Manchurian candidate or the mind controlled assassin yeah. and how it's not yeah. who we thought it was. Right. You know what I mean, yes. like that, that I really want you to get to, too. So just yeah, fire this, away, buddy. No, this is a good point. We should do that before we get too far from Tony, because uh, towards the end of Captain America three, Tony Stark literally calls the Winter Soldier. Can we use that as a cliffhanger? Uh, like, this is this is good stuff, guys. I know where you're going, but. Well, hold on. I got, I got, I got another cliffhanger. Uh, if you want to jump better. out and switch streams, that's okay. I want to wrap with these yeah, ideas yeah. of Gabriel's right, and then wrap right. it. Okay, cool. So, so Tony Stark literally calls Winter Soldier a uh, Manchurian candidate. He's like, yo, man, put the gun away. We got a truce going here, okay, Manchurian candidate? He calls him that. And it's only five minutes later that Tony Stark he uh, is shown the murder of his own parents and Tony Stark, after all of his high and mighty noble alignment to the UN agenda, he becomes the Manchurian candidate. He flips his shit. He finds out that Captain America knew all along that Bucky killed his parents and that he was hiding it and protecting him from the truth. And he loses his shit and everything is horrible and terrible. And, uh, Tony Stark ends up like, that's my dad's shield. I'm taking my toys and I'm going home. Like it's literally uh, reduced to ju- juvenile uh, tit for tat bullshit. But I want to, I want to seed everybody with this, with this little component. Uh, I don't know if you can pull up any of the, uh, those, some of those last graphics uh, that I brought up. It's the one with uh, where they're in the car where Captain America is being uh, driven by um Junior, oh, I forget. I always forget this this guy's name. Uh, he's being driven in the car to like it's a convertible. This Here is it is. It. Thank, that's it. Thank you. So, uh, this is basically a recap of the JFK event. Uh, he's in a convertible, uh, in before he can jump onto the airplane to catch the Red Skull. Who Red Skull is Agent Smith, and his name is uh, Johann Schmidt. It's like a, a total uh, yeah, echo. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so before he can jump on the plane, he gets a kiss from Sweetheart. Well, that's basically like what everybody that's pulling on the heartstrings from the JFK spell big time. Um, but what's fascinating, let's see. I got a bit. Okay. So then he gets on the airplane and there's bombs on the airplane that literally have the name of their target on the bomb. Just recently in Afghanistan, I think, no, Pakistan, no, Iran. Iran is shown to have bombs with like, this one's for Israel, spray painted on the fucking bomb. Like they're going to put the name of their target on the bomb. It's so ridiculous. So that's that's totally predictively seeding. Um, and, oh yeah, Johann Schmidt, he's uh, focused on occult power and Teutonic myth. I found that to be a very fascinating weave. Uh, and then uh, he's a member of the inner circle. Well, the inner circle, that's literally uh, Cecil Rhodes, La Cercle. Um, but what's really kind of far out here is he becomes Red Skull. And Red Skull, because this is the first one, uh, this is uh, Captain America. We're, we're in the earliest chronology of the whole arc. Well, Red Skull is the world card. It's the robed figure in the world card in the very end of the entire story arc with uh, Endgame. 
it's in the end game where the red skull is like a, this is the alchemical wedding. We have a, he's seated in the beginning of the chronology and he uh, is still alive, surviving in that parallel dimension in the end. And what is really far out guys is the red skull was the nickname for Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson went to St. Petersburg for all kinds of psychological breakdown because of all of his drug addiction. And now he's coming back and now he's raising a fucking army, y'all. He's raising an army. And guess what? He's rubbing elbows with the United Nations. And the Red Skull thing was like fun and games and they were joking. But I just want to point out that I am not able to believe that things are as organic as we are led to think. 100%. Be, be 100%, buddy, because not even the word cool is organic. We got the word cool from Tavistock. And cool sure sounds a lot like school. And how did they placate the, the revolutionary movement of the 60s? They placated them with student loans. So they give them the word cool, and then they give them student loans and credit cards, and the whole revolution gets the rug pulled out from under it, and they spike the fucking national debt to the fucking moon. So I just wanted to put a highlight on Jordan Peterson, who, by the way, has read Machiavelli, and not in a good way, and now he's rubbing elbows with the United Nations, and it turns out his brother-in-law is a fucking spook central. He's a, he's a, he's he's pulling strings in high places and a lot of people like him. So I just wanted to put a little light of shade on the red skull in the fact that when you really look at what the red skull meant in our culture and you look at Jordan Peterson, it can't be, it cannot fucking be organic. It cannot be a coincidence. This is fabricated for sure. Yeah. And that character I think was also highly manipulated through the, uh, the drug addiction and the pharmaceutical side of things, which is right. part of the equation. And he's a, he's a number three on my Enneagram, which is bad news to the bone. His fucking hangman status, Jordan <laughs> Peterson. He's fucking uh, Jordan River. He's the Orion constellation walking on the Uradness, and he's wielding 12 rules for people to live by. That's the fucking new, uh, it's the new tablets of he's Moses. Supposed to have a new, new commandments. New commandments to live by, man. It's it's next level. So I just wanted to put a little shade where it belongs on that guy. <clears throat> Sweet. I'm down with that, man. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, guys, how do you feel about picking this up tomorrow night? Oh, shit. That way yeah. it's like really fresh. Mm. I will get back to you. How's that? Okay. Okay. Well, we're going to wrap for now and then we'll be back as soon as we can, you know, maybe even tomorrow night or something. Uh, we'll talk, you know, we'll talk shop outside of this, but we want to come back and, and bust out the rest of this, this talk because we, we got into the baseline trauma stuff, but the predictive programming of specific world events, there's a lot of gravy to be ladled with that. So part two, yeah, man. Come in as soon as we can and uh, really enjoyed it. I'm glad we got this group back together. And now that like we're in it, I'm, I'm pretty gung ho to, to keep going. So yeah, buddy. A good point to, good point to wrap it, you know, not to get too long in the tooth and we'll, we'll reconvene. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks everyone in the chat. Hope you enjoyed it. Share that with the, share that podcast with people if you liked it and you know, Get on the Slick Dissonant Shared Learning Experience on YouTube. There's a link to that in the chat. Join us on <laughs> Telegram. The Interverse Telegram channel is super litty. Uh, other than that, we'll 
We'll call it. Two shoes on uh, Instagram. Oh yeah, two shoes on Instagram. Yeah. Say what other plugs you got? That's it. That's all I am. I'm an owl now. (laughs) The owl guy. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, good night and uh, good luck, everybody. (laughs) See ya. Yes.